Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And the whole gang is back for another episode of Peach Pod this week. I am now joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I only have one final left. And so, you know, soon I will be done with the, this semester of law school. You will survive halfway to the finish line. Um, and then also joining us this week is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Just got back from some world travels. So I'm excited to be back in the States for the holidays, which will be nice. Well, how was your trip? It was amazing. So um, for our listeners who don't know, I got the opportunity to go to India um, as part of my day job. And um, it was phenomenal. I lost Thanksgiving, but that's okay because I totally did an Indian Thanksgiving. One of the really interesting things that happened while there, um, they were supposed to have a pride march in Bangalore that actually got postponed because of a death. There was an actor turned politician who was extremely popular. And so the entire state of uh, Karnataka, which is where I was, it went, which is where Bangalore is, essentially went into mourning. Um, so that was really interesting politically to learn more about what happens and um, also to learn a good bit about the LGBT politics that are changing in India. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, well, on this week's show, we are going to talk about the future for Democrats in the state of Georgia now that the 2018 midterms have officially ended. Democrats did make gains in the state house and they won one congressional district in the sixth district, as we've talked about before. Uh, and this was largely based on their improved performance in the Atlanta suburbs. But as we'll note, now that all of the general election runoffs are over, they did come up short in all of the statewide contests. Um, so we'll talk about challenges and opportunities for the party moving forward. And then uh, for the second half of the show, you're going to hear my discussion with Jay Bookman. He's a longtime columnist for the AJC who is retiring at the end of the year. Um, so we sat down and had a conversation about how about his career and about all that he's seen in Georgia politics, writing for two decades for the AJC. Um, so I'm excited to share that conversation with y'all. But first, let's jump in on this first topic with the future of Democrats in the state of Georgia. Um, so we're recording about a week after the general election runoffs ended, and both John Barrow and Lindy Miller uh, came up short in the runoff elections. John Barrow came up short in the Secretary of State's race, and Lindy Miller came up short in a race for a seat on the Public Service Commission. That means that all statewide offices next year will continue to be held by Republicans. And although Democrats made gains in the legislature and won a congressional seat, I think there is some feeling of disappointment that one of those statewide candidates didn't break through. Luke, let's just start with you and sort of how how do you feel coming out of this election. Do you feel a little disappointed that there's not a Democrat sitting in a statewide seat? Yeah, obviously I, I'm I'm pretty disappointed about that. Despite despite that being the outcome, as we discussed many times in our Slack channel and on here, that was the outcome that I expected to see happen. So I, I'm not really surprised. I think the thing that I'm the most disappointed about though is I was hoping 
that since we did have a lot of campaigns running statewide that I thought were pretty good and were adopting very different styles, you know, you had Barrow running a really nonpartisan race. I mean, he he did explicitly say that he was a Democrat, but he was not trying to run very partisan. It was explicitly running as a nonpartisan uh, individual. And then you had Stacey Abrams running as someone who was very uh, partisan. And I was hoping that there would be some significant differentiation between how those campaigns did, you know, who got more votes, you know, something that would show us a path forward and how to campaign in Georgia successfully. And while Barrow made it to a runoff and Abrams didn't, I honestly think it might have more to do with the quality of the libertarian candidates that were running in those races because Ted Metz, as we have uh, very thoroughly discussed, was a subpar libertarian candidate, whereas uh, the... um, libertarian candidate for secretary of state was i mean you know as far as libertarians go i mean he had a concrete message that he was pushing he knew the issues decently and he got over two percent of the vote um and that was enough to push barrow to a runoff and so i really wonder if ted metz had been a stronger candidate if he would have pushed uh them to a runoff as well and that being the major difference between abrams going to uh, not going to a runoff and barrow going to one so I, i think that's honestly my biggest disappointment that i don't know how much we've learned Megan, part of what defined the strategy for Democrats this cycle was to go all in on progressive voters and try to turn out those voters who turn out less frequently to try to do that both in the general election and the runoff. This is a stark difference from the strategy of recent years of trying to move towards the center and appeal to some moderate Republicans who maybe they could peel off and try to get a majority statewide that way. Coming out of this now that all these races are over, looking forward to 2020, to a statewide Senate race, and to another chance for Democrats in the legislature, do you think that that's the right strategy for them, or do you think they need to rethink what they did in 2018? It's hard to say, because honestly, you have to appeal to both groups. Um, If you, a lot of people just, turnout is a problem. Uh, We just saw this with the runoff election. Turnout was horrible. And so you have to just turn out every single person who's going to vote for you. And that includes both the super progressive voters who are all the way on the left and those Republicans that you can peel off from the center. So I don't know. One of the things that I've kind of been chewing on as a member of the Democratic Party and as a member of Young Dems of Georgia and Young Dems ATL is if the party in general just needs to modernize. I I think part of the issue is that maybe it's not that we're targeting the wrong groups. I think that maybe just the party needs to modernize and re-message. And maybe that would re-energize voters everywhere that would engage with the party. Again, I know that's totally pie in the sky. That's kind of like my shtick on this show. But I really do think that we have to change the party overall, not just how we advertise. So does that, to you, does that mean like, new leadership at the top of the party, like a younger generation, or is that more geared in or more based in like technology and just the the techniques the party uses to do its business to reach out to voters and get them to the polls? What, what does that sort of modernizing idea mean to you? I would like to see new leadership. It doesn't necessarily have to be younger leadership. I'm not an ageist. You know, we can have somebody that's 102 at the top of the party as long as they are truly willing to embrace new ideas. What I 
think the issue is, is that we've got people that have been involved in the party for so long that are essentially doing politics based on the status quo, based on this is how you do politics. And I don't know that that's necessarily serving the party anymore. Yeah, I think coming out of this election for me, I think I sort of feel the same way about Georgia Democrats as I feel about uh, the Georgia Bulldogs that came up short in the SEC championship yet again. Go dogs. That like, go dogs. Go sad, dogs. Sad day for uh, Georgia fans a couple weekends ago. Um, but I, I feel like the strategy is right. The techniques are right. And you just kind of have to keep plugging away at it that the margins were cut really significantly in both the general election and even in the runoff, even though you had lower turnout, these runoff races were much closer than recent victories for Republicans in runoffs. And so it's just, I think it's it just an example of the need to keep plugging away at what they're doing. Because if you look at the Georgia six race, this the special election that John Ossoff was in against Karen Handel, that Karen Handel ultimately prevailed in, there was a lot of money put into that race. And there was a lot of focus on it. And I think that that was kind of one of the big first tests of like a get out the vote effort, and the mechanics of getting people out to the polls. And then I think you saw in the Lucy McBath race that that the Democrats were able to build off the effort in the special election to hone and improve those strategies in the general election. And they were able to push that over the top. And I think that this statewide and and in other districts outside of Georgia six, this was really the first big test of this sort of new democratic strategy, and they were able to cut the margins. And so I think that it's a good sign for them moving forward that they keep doing what they're doing. But it's, I think that then once you go all in on that strategy, you're really going all in on turnout among voters who are less connected to politics, uh, people who are personally progressive, but don't aren't super engaged with the politics of the state. And you know, 2020, the next big election is going to be a presidential year. So there's going to be Trump at the top of the ticket. It's good. You know, a lot more people are going to be focused on politics for that election. And I think at that point, that's where you need to see the improve the performance improve on 2018. And the most direct measures of that are in the Senate race against David Perdue, and then improvements in margins in state house and state Senate districts. uh, Because those are the two you know, we're going to get one big statewide race, and then we're going to get legislative elections again. Um, that's where I'm looking to see if they can improve from 2018 to 2020. Yeah, because while there's a lot of places I would like to see improvement, and there's definitely uh, some people in the leadership of the party that I would like to see uh, move on to greener pastures, it should be noted that with the current team we have, with the candidate we have at the top of the ticket and Stacey Abrams, you know, uh, Jason Carter's margin was roughly 200,000 votes that he had to pick up to have won. But Stacey Abrams only needed 55,000 votes to have won this race. If she could have found those 55,000 somewhere else, uh, she would have been able to win. And so, I mean, with that in mind, I think you're right that we just need to keep pushing and chugging along and trying to to get this thing done. And I think the the thing that this race and this cycle shows me is with the success that we had in the 6th District and which, with the success we had in the Georgia State House and even in the State Senate a little bit, Georgia is a state that is worth investing in and that if you are running a presidential race, 
2020, you should really look at Georgia as an option. And because Georgia is moving towards the Democratic column, whereas some other states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Wisconsin might be starting to move away from the Democratic column. Uh, and I think on that front, if Georgia is not part of the strategy, uh, it, it will be a severe mistake because I think the difference between you know, Georgia and Virginia and North Carolina is that we haven't seen the type of investment that those other states have seen. And I think we can become a state that will not be a reliable democratic state, you know, in two or three cycles, but we can be one that's really competitive, that we will win some races and we'll lose some other races. And it'll just be truly a swing state. And I think, I think it will require national investment because the voters are here and they are eager for another option. I think the amount of energy that I've seen on the ground and the amount of people who've never been involved before but are involved now uh, is is really high. And I, I haven't seen much demoralization uh, from them despite these losses. So I'm hoping with all that in mind, uh, two years from now, we will have a really solid, really exciting Senate candidate against David Perdue and a presidential campaign that is at least you know, has Georgia in one of their top tiers, if not the top tier. So I guess I'm alone in the thinking the party needs to evolve and change. No, I, I, I think there's a lot of change that needs to be done in the personnel and the uh, people in the party because they have been there too long. And I think they're not of the crop that needs to, needs to be done. But I also am someone who thinks that a lot of the energy and like the, we're not going to win or lose because the you know finance director of the Democratic Party of Georgia is person A or person B. We're going to win or lose because of the candidates we run and the campaigns they run and the people that they energize. The party is really, really important. And it does a lot of really critical functions, but I think the energy is going to come from the grassroots, and that's where I think we will see uh, a victory in 2020. Uh, I, I think I think the party needs to catch up with what we're seeing on the ground. So, what do y'all think about candidates? the The last group of statewide candidates that I can think of over the last three or four cycles have all kind of been legacy candidates. Roy Barnes took another crack at governor after he was beaten. Then Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn were kind of legacy names in Georgia politics, even though they were both relatively new to state politics themselves. And now Stacey Abrams has been a longtime figure in the Democratic Party. And she would, at least to me, feel a little bit like a legacy candidate if she turned around and ran in 2020 again do you think do you guys want to see uh stacy abrams at the top of that ticket or are there any other names you have in mind for new folks who could be the top democratic statewide candidate in 2020 i think we should define new so this is something that i've kind of struggled with getting involved with some elections regarding first-time candidates or you know, just candidates that are putting their name on the ballot because they don't want a Republican to run unopposed. While I really admire the chutzpah it takes to do that, I do also think that there are certain things that you can only learn through experience and experience in politics based on how how the game works. And so if we if we're saying new in the sense that like someone's that, that has never run before, but has been highly involved in politics and has been studying the way politics work, been studying the way politics can evolve, been, you know, really engaged in 
what they would need to do to actually affect change, then heck yes, I want to see someone new. But if we're talking about somebody new that doesn't have any experience, I think that that is asking for trouble, even if they win. Jim Barksdale was new, <laughs> if anybody <laughs> remembers who he was. Uh, all right, now that I've like cleared that headache out of my mind. As far as your question <laughs> to who I want to see running, if I want to see Abrams run again, the main thing I want is to continue what we saw with this cycle in that we had contested primaries. I think that's really important because I think Abrams's campaign was able to do what it did and get as close as it did because of the fact that they had two five primary and that uh, even though they were massively successful in it, I think that set them up to the uh, the close loss that they got to. And I think you know running against David Perdue is a different thing than running against Brian Kemp. And I, I know that's a very like obvious statement, but it really is. And the type of candidate who we want against running against him and to represent us in the Senate might be different than what Abrams is offering. Uh, and maybe not, you know, so we'll have to see who puts their, their names out there. I mean, there's definitely, uh, some names already being floated out there. So I, I think the main thing though, just like with this whole conversation is the amount of improvement in the quality of campaigns and candidates that we saw from even just 2014 to 2018 is really, really noticeable. And I think that is something to be proud of and a trend line that I hope, uh, continues because, our statewide candidates were much better uh, this time around, and they really pretty much all were running real campaigns, and I don't think that was the case in 2014. The other thing, uh, too, though, is that the the qual- increase of quality and quantity of candidates uh, really was represented, I think, on the state house and state senate level. We had really, really good candidates at, on the state for the state house uh several you know many of them got elected and i think uh they're going to do really exciting things and i think the thing that i feel the best about now for the party is going into other cycles i was really scared of anyone who was currently elected running for a higher office because they have to give up their seat because the people that I think could run quality statewide campaigns and potentially win were the same people who I thought were doing a really good job in their current position. And uh, with the numbers that we had, losing them would be a real loss to the party. Uh, but now we're, we're building up our bench, and I, I feel a lot more comfortable that if you have someone who's currently doing a really good job in a position, if they run, we're not going to be at a huge loss for losing that one person because now we have a lot of new, younger, uh, really energized state legislators that I think will do an excellent job. And so I'm looking forward to and excited about the idea of people like Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans running for higher office now rather than dragging it. Megan, what about focusing a little more on the state house and state senate? Is there momentum there to actually make one of these chambers flippable given the group of candidates that we saw in this last election because I think you know it's to me it's the same question as the statewide question like it's great to come within two points or one point statewide but the actual policies that are being adopted in Georgia aren't going to change unless people win either a statewide seat or flip a chamber do you think it's possible that one of those chambers might be able to flip in the next two or four years I do think so. I think that with the crop of candidates that we had, including those who lost, I think that continued engagement 
in politics, essentially, I wouldn't say continued campaigning because that's not really right, but just continually getting engaged, speaking out, making statements, learning more about the process. I think that those candidates will, we will become more comfortable with them. They will learn more of the process and of what is needed and what is wanted of their potential constituents. And then I think they'll be, they'll be even stronger. You know, it's like, it would be the equivalent of continuing school, continue to learn, continue to engage, continue to network. And then when your chance is available again, take it and you'll be that much stronger. Yeah, I think the key to that is sort of the shifting battleground in Georgia politics. The fact that Democrats did much better in the suburbs than they have done in recent races, I think is a big opening for Democrats. And I think that this is something they have to take advantage of by the time the 2020 cycle is over, because I think chances are Donald Trump loses re-election as president, given how unpopular he is. But he is a lightning rod for getting for boosting Democratic turnout, especially in elections that are less high profile. And it's going to make it much more difficult for Republicans now that they will control all of the statewide seats, including the most important one, the governor, for the next redistricting process, it's going to be very critical for Democrats to be sitting in as many of those state House seats as they can to give Republicans fewer opportunities to draw gerrymandered maps that would be able to protect their power going forward. Because if you have Democrats sitting in these seats, Republicans drawing the maps are just going to have to start picking who they think they can pick off and draw districts that way versus um, previously when Democrats struggled in the suburbs and, and had were near the super minority level, I think it was easier to draw maps that blocked them out of power just because there there were so few seats of power that they held. Um, Luke, what do you what do you think of that in the context of the redistricting argument and and how these chambers are going to look over the next few cycles? I, I think it's going to be really difficult um, on, on multiple levels. It's going to be difficult for Democrats to get either chamber. The state house is definitely more in play than the state senate, uh, but it would be a pretty heavy lift. We would basically have to repeat the performance of this cycle where we pick up close to a dozen seats to and don't lose anything uh, that in the, to to take control of the chamber and have uh, Representative Bob Trammell as uh, the House Speaker. And I think that's a pretty heavy lift. I think it's possible. I think if Democrats use this session and next session very effectively and provide a clear alternative to what the Republicans are wanting to do and to get some publicity and get their me- our message out there a lot better than we have done in the past, I think it's possible, but that's a heavy lift. And then uh, what you're saying as well, it's going to be difficult uh, to redraw the map in Georgia you know, for Republicans it, to to keep the numbers that they they want to get, and I think they're going to find themselves in a very dangerous position because, despite the uh, new Supreme Court we will be facing, Georgia's already one of the most gerrymandered states in the country, if not the most gerrymandered state in the country. And it's honestly kind of surprising to me that Georgia hasn't gotten more trouble with su- the Supreme Court. I think there's a lot less 
active lawsuits against us and a lot less Section 2 challenges than the state probably uh, needs. Uh, you know, with the Voting Rights Act, uh, there, there's there's mechanisms to challenge the maps that we have, and I don't think they're being used as much as they, they could be. That being said, with all of the attention that voter suppression has gotten in Georgia, if the Republicans control all the levers of government and they pass the types of maps that I expect them to, I I think they're going to face a lot of real, real bad legal challenges uh, to them. I I think this is a political landmine for them because the amount of gerrymandering they're going to have to do is going to be really, really difficult for them to keep good numbers because, and this is one of the biggest reasons it's going to be so difficult for them, is that not only are we starting to do well in the suburbs, but the other parts of the state that Democrats tend to do well in are growing. And so Athens, for example, city I live in, so it's the one I know the best, like the population of Athens is growing significantly compared to the counties surrounding Athens. And so because of that, a smaller chunk of Athens will make up a full district. And so it's going to be harder and harder for them to cut up the the Democratic block areas because of the fact that the populations are growing there and the populations in the areas where they are having a lot of success is shrinking. It's, it's going to be very difficult. I think, for them to to draw maps like they have previously. All right. Well, a lot of work left for Democrats to do, but I think that they can feel pretty good about some of the progress that they made in 2018. But for now, I think we are going to leave that conversation there, and I will turn it over to the discussion I had with Jay Bookman, retiring AJC columnist. Uh, So here are Jay and I. So we're now joined by Jay Bookman, a longtime columnist at the AJC, uh, who is going to be retired from the paper really soon. Uh, Jay is joining us to talk about his career in writing and all of the things in politics that he's seen throughout his career. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for joining the show. Glad to do it. So let's start with uh, the the man who always seems to be the center of conversation in our <laughs> politics these days, and that is uh, President Donald Trump. Um, you bring decades of experience in writing about and observing politics to this conversation. And one of the questions that I'm constantly asking myself is, how bad is this really? We're talking on December 12th, shortly after the 2018 midterms, and at a time when observers think the Mueller probe is moving closer to President Trump. Um, so in your view, what is the Trump threat level? I think it's very high. I think it's probably come down some, in part because of Mueller. I think also because with two years in office, people have begun to recognize him for what he is. So I think uh, the some of the danger has passed, but I think he's still capable of, of a great deal of damage in the, in the two years he has left in office. If, if he does have two years left in office, I think he's capable of doing a, a great deal of damage in any number of ways, foreign policy, domestic policy. But I think the, the system itself is, is uh, it's recognized the antibody and is in the process of rejecting it, so to speak. One of the ways in which Trump has really hit at one of the core norms of our country is in his attacks on the free press. And so compared to other presidents or particularly vindictive politicians you might have interacted with, how have Trump's attacks on the press impacted you and your colleagues in journalism? Well, there's always been a friction, a useful friction, I think, between the, the media and the and po- the politicians we cover. And, you know, I've had politicians threaten to get me fired and things like that. And uh, nothing ever came of it. But so you, you'd have it would be a, a dispute with an individual politician. They would often try to intimidate or, or scare or or court 
whatever they, you know, various means to try to, to get you to write what they wanted you to write. Uh, but this is something on a much larger scale. It's organized. It has specific goals in mind. Uh, the press has a- always operated uh, as a founder saw it as a kind of referee of the game. Uh, and I think that the goal of the, of the attacks on the press now are to basically discredit the referee in that sense. And, and which turns politics into a, uh, into, into, uh, you know, a pro wrestling where the, the referee is, is, is part of the game and, and nobody, you know, he's in on the joke and, and no, nobody ever takes any of it seriously. So I think that's, that's, that is part of the goal. And it's, it's a concerted, organized effort to do that. So that's something new entirely. So let's step back from Trump a little bit for a few minutes. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about your career and talk about how you got into this business. Um, so what was your first job as a writer? And, and how did this uh, career path that you've been on lead you to the AJC? I had wanted to be a newspaper journalist since I was in third grade. Went on a, a school field trip to the, to a, the local newspaper and uh, thought, wow, you can, people pay you to do this, to write and, and cover things. And I thought that was just the coolest thing there was. Um, so ever since then, I, that's what, what where my goal has been. And I started off at a small paper in Western Massachusetts and then went worked for three years in the early 80s in Las Vegas. And that's where I got into the opinion uh, writing area. Uh, hadn't really thought of that as a career path, but but that's where the job opening was as a writer. So I applied and got it and found I liked it. And apparently people thought I was pretty good at it. So I went to a paper in Washington State for eight years and then came to Atlanta in 1990 and have been pretty much writing opinion since then. I took a few years to write the, uh, a technology column, but after 9-11, they asked me to come back to the editorial board because I had some experience overseas uh, in foreign policy and military affairs. So I came back and resumed the uh, editorial line of work. So what is, you You uh, noted this in your going away column in the AJC that you were interested in sort of pursuing other things that weren't kind of the day-to-day grind of, of producing a column every day or, or just about every day. What is the production process like for producing a column like that every single day? And do you think it impacts sort of how you see politics or you know, um, how you absorb the events going on in the world every day? Sure. Uh, it is, it, it has been every day, you know, and, and if something happens on the weekend, you're on call to do it then. And that's fine. That's, that's understood to be part of the job. Um, but as soon as you finish writing one piece, your, your immediate goal is, okay, what am I going to write about next? You're, it's a, you're constantly scanning the horizon, looking for another topic that you might be able to say something interesting on. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a daily grind, and you, and you don't have the time to take a larger look at things. So it's a drain, especially in, in the new media world. Uh, you do it without an editor. So when I write a column to, to put on the, the blog, I write it, and, and I hit the publish button. That's You have no back backdrop, no, no nobody editing you, overseeing you, uh, which is the freedom is great, but it's also a little scary. You're out there on a tightrope by yourself. Over the course of your career, how has this business changed? And is is there any advice that you would have for somebody coming into this business today in 2018, as opposed to when you entered this business decades ago? What what would uh, you like some young person entering this business to know about it? That's an interesting question. I, it has changed dramatically in the time 
when, for instance, when I came to the Atlanta newspapers in 1990, we had an editorial staff of maybe 15, maybe 20 people. Today, we have an editorial staff of three. And after I'm gone, that'll be two. So it's quite, quite a bit different. The economics of it have changed dramatically. The technology has changed dramatically. Uh, the role of the press has tra- changed dramatically. I've thought sometimes of, of, of trying to teach journalism. But the fact of the matter is, it has changed so much. I don't know if what I have to teach folks in college, how to apply that to the world that they're going to, to see. It's because of the world that, that I have known in journalism is, is very different from the world that folks coming out of college now will, will, will deal with. Everything's different about it. Uh, so I, I wouldn't know basically what to teach them. You could teach them the basics, you know, uh, about libel and, and getting your facts right and, and how to craft a story and those things. But, but the, the, the various platforms you've got to be on, the fact that mo- most, most folks who are going to in, be in journalism now, you're probably going to be freelancing for a, at least for a, long, for a good long while. You know, the staff of the AJC was probably a, a news staff, of, including photographers, et cetera. It's probably four or five hundred people when I came to the AJC. Now I think it's probably the headcount is probably less than a hundred. Wow. Well, when 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 for instance when when Craigslist came on, newspaper classifieds were a huge source of revenue for newspapers. Craigslist came along and offered free classifieds that were. Uh, accessible through the internet, searchable, uh, just a far superior technology for the reader, for the user. That was great. But classifieds had been a $30 million profit center for the AJC. And that went away completely in a, in a matter of about a year. $30 million hires a lot of reporters and editors and photographers. Let's talk a little bit about Georgia and what some of your columns have been about, what some of what you've seen over all these years. We're just coming out of the closest governor's race since the 1960s. And while the state, at least to me, feels like a battleground state, like it's a competitive state between Democrats and Republicans, Republicans still dominate every constitutional office and hold pretty substantial majorities in the state house and state senate. And while I would have my own policy differences with Republicans, and I'm sure you could cite some of your own from reading your columns. The state seems to have found what feels like at least stable leadership under Governor Deal, House Speaker David Ralston, and Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle. But both Deal and Cagle are going to exit the stage this year and be replaced with people who were much closer to grassroots conservative politics in their in their upbringing. So what's your outlook for the state under this new crop of Republican leadership? I think you're right. Uh, the, the two Republican governors we've had, Nathan Deal and Sonny Perdue, were, both had been Democrats before converting to Republican. Uh, they were brought up in the Democratic Party, which at that time was a, was a coalition party between the white establishment in Georgia and and the and Black Georgia. Um, so that was the they were comfortable in that kind of arrangement. Brian Kemp will be the first hardcore. Republican governor uh, the state has had. And I think that it, it, he comes into office at a time when he's going to be a red state governor trying to govern a purple state verging toward a blue state. And I question whether he will have the flexibility, whether he ha- has the in- interest or flexibility in, in being in compromising in uh, 
in, in actually governing this as a purple state. Uh, I think his instinct uh, will be to govern it as a deep red state, and I think we'll see. But I, m- my prediction at this point would be that he is prob- his term as governor will probably accelerate the transition of Georgia toward a purple state because I just don't see that he's going to be willing to moderate on some of the social issues and, and other issues that uh, that Governor Deal, for instance, has, has been able to moderate on. So for Democrats, they, they came up short in the governor's race in all of the statewide races. They have some victories in a congressional seat and in the state house they can point to. Uh, but under Stacey Abrams' banner, state Democrats focused on engaging infrequent voters who had not turned out in past elections and broke away from the strategy of recent years of targeting moderate but engaged Republicans to try to bring them back into the Democratic fold. Is that a formula for success for Democrats moving forward, in your view? I had my doubts about that prior to the election. And the the election would seem to uh, have dispelled those doubts. Uh, Stacey Abrams did very well. Democrats as a whole did very well. They took sixth congressional district uh, in a surprise, which is about you know, Newt Gingrich's district, longtime uh, Republican district. They almost took the seventh congressional district. So it was a big year for the Democrats. Now, the question remains is that, was that a fluke? Did Donald Trump have more to do with bringing out those casual voters in 2018 than the Democratic efforts? Is, is it? Is that kind of turnout of the disaffected, so to speak, can you repeat that in cycle after cycle when when the time comes when Donald Trump is not on the ballot or is, is not the disruptive figure that he is? I think that's still out there, but it, it certainly worked this time. But whether, again, that, that's a permanent way of doing business or whether that was a one-off because of uh, Trump's style of governing, I think that's still up in the air. Yeah, I think I think to me it raises this question of, how much Georgia has actually changed and the possibility for a big sea change from this last state election had me thinking a lot about the um, GOP takeover of the state house highlighted by Sonny Perdue's triumph over former governor Barnes in 2002. Um, And what I assumed was probably a big sea change at the time uh, between Democratic rule transitioning to Republican rule in the early 2000s doesn't really look that way in some of your columns from like 2002, 2003. You know, some of your columns from the very beginning of the Purdue era talked about Purdue having to deal with the issue of the state flag and the promise that he made to hold a referendum on changing the state flag after uh, Barnes's tenure. And as mm-hmm. we exit this last election, you have the Abrams campaign alleging voter suppression and and tactics to discourage people of color from voting that to me, at least, you know, while it's a different subject, it doesn't sound that different than the controversy over the flag from 16 years ago. Has Georgia really changed all that much from democratic rule up to 2002 through Republican rule that continues into 2019? I think it probably has. Um, it was it was a major change when it was a Purdue's victory was a big surprise. Uh, he was the, the the word was that he was the most surprised person in the state when he won. Folks within that campaign have have confirmed that that that's the way it was. And it was amazing to see as soon as a Republican was elected governor, uh, you had a whole batch of 
Democratic state senators within a week of the of the of Purdue's victory announced they were switching parties. And so you had the state Senate, which was had the newly elected state Senate, uh, which was still under Democratic control, switched to Republican control within a matter of a week just by virtue of people who had been elected four or five days earlier as Democrats converting to the Republican Party. So it was it was a stunning transition. It was the moderating force at that time was the fact that the Democrats were able to hold on to the House for several more cycles. So there was there was still a uh, everybody had to get along to get things done. And all the people involved, it wasn't really a change of personnel. People changed seats. They changed parties, but it was the same group of people. You, know, you, you didn't have a whole batch of really conservative Republicans coming in. You had Purdue winning and then this, the Democrats turning into Republicans. But they, was, they were the same people. Uh, they just changed the party label. Those things served to, to make it uh, smooth it out and not make it a, an abrupt transition that it might have been otherwise. So I got lost a little bit reading columns of yours from the early 2000s, uh, particularly because of something you noted in your goodbye article. You wrote about how uh, your writing on the Iraq war uh, at that time was not the most welcomed thing, uh, (laughs) the most welcomed opinion to take at the time. You were really skeptical of President Bush's justification for the invasion of Iraq and pointed to uh, writings from people who would go on to be on his national security team, showing that the real goal of war in Iraq was the establishment of a, a Pax Americana or an American peace uh, that was really a, a global American empire. Can you describe what being a dissenting voice during that time was like for you? It was quite interesting. Um, you, 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 we talked earlier about the tension, the conflict between Trump and the media, for the most part, there was no such tension between Bush and, and his push for the Iraq war and the media. Most of the media in the wake of 9-11 was not willing to even question what the president was, was asking the country to do. So those few of us who were willing to publicly question, it was, it was uh, quite difficult. A lot of pressure from readers, a lot of criticism from politicians, from uh, other media. We became a uh, Bill O'Reilly on Fox was was all but calling the Atlanta Journal Constitution a, a, a nest of traitors. Uh, it was a just by virtue of, of of being a large regional newspaper. I mean, who was arguing against going into the war? That made us a target nationwide because you had the New York Times basically advocating for the war, both on the reporting side and on the opinion side. Uh, the same with the Washington Post. You had the National Journalist who should have been doing the hard work of questioning and and challenging and, and uh, raising doubts about these decisions, instead playing cheerleader. And that was, a, frankly, a, a, an eye-opener for me. They weren't behaving as I understood journalists should behave. I had a background as a county government reporter. I'd covered city councils and stuff like that. And one of the things you learn doing that is if, if, if they're lying to you about something, then probably the whole enterprise is corrupt. And that's you saw them lying about their reasons for going into Iraq and what would happen uh, once we got into Iraq and what their goals were in, in going into Iraq, they were lying about all those things. And it was pretty easily documented that they were lying about all those things. But most of the press just wasn't interested in, in, in covering that story. In the wake of 9-11, everybody had to be patriotic, but 
sometimes patriotism requires that you stand up and say no. Did, as as these events unfolded and as uh, proof of WMDs never came to fruition and, and much of 2006 and 2008 was about the Iraq war and, and politics moved in the direction of uh, supporting politicians who had opposed that war from the beginning, did you feel vindicated at all by that movement? Yeah, I guess I did, but it, it wasn't much of a wasn't much of a help. We, you know, I we still call that the the biggest foreign policy blunder in American history. So being right about it after the fact didn't really help help with the consequences. I think we're still seeing those consequences today. Uh, a lot of people lost faith in the American government and in, in, in our leadership elite in in uh, in the press as well. And and I can't argue that they were wrong to feel that way. And you know, in some ways, you could argue you could draw a line from that disenchantment to the presidency of Donald Trump. So in addition to your career as a journalist and as a columnist, you wrote a book in 2004, uh, Caught in the Current, Searching for Simplicity in the Technology Technological Age. Your book actually barely predates Twitter, which launched in 2006, and the iPhone, which came a year later in 2007. But it covers sort of the ubiquitous nature of technology, even before our eyes were surgically attached to our, our cell phone screens. Do you connect what you learned as a technology reporter and, and in writing that book uh, to any of the developments that we've seen in politics since you know about this time this book was published in the mid-2000s? Sure, definitely. One of the arguments I made in that book uh... – Marshall McLuhan, who's a famous, uh, at the time of, was a famous media analyst. In one of his books, he talked about a, a village in India uh, where the UN had come in uh, and, and they, they had a common well. Everybody went to the well every day to get water for the well, and everybody stood in line with the buckets and got their water. And the uh, UN came in and, and said, Guess what? We're going to put pipes that could take water right into your home. You have running water right in your home. You don't have to come to the well anymore. Everybody's going to have running water. In their home, and they did that, and and within a year, village elders went to the UN and said, "Take this out. We want, we don't want this anymore," because the communal sense of everybody standing, drawing water from the same well, standing there talking, gossiping, discussing issues of, of what's going on in the village, et cetera, et cetera, that all broke apart. So I, I drew from that that uh, McLuhan didn't actually the what we've seen wasn't apparent to McLuhan at the time. He, he wrote that anecdote. But my, one of my thesis was that communication destroys community. The community exists in part to facilitate communication among everybody. So if everybody has, you don't have a common well to draw upon anymore, that it, it, you, you can, it all comes to you and however you want it, and you don't have to interact with, with your neighbor, and you can it you said that that destroys a sense of community you become more isolated uh, it doesn't make sense it's counterintuitive in a sense because communication ought to, ought to facilitate community but i think instead it, it erodes it and i think we've seen that actually play out again uh that's a thread that leads us to the trump presidency and what's going on all around the world i the thing that i was left with after the 2016 election was just uh, this, the, this just super simple question of how the same country can, in the period of like 15 years, come out of you know what you said maybe the most uh, the biggest foreign policy mistake that this country has ever made. 
then to elect the first African-American president, and then to turn around eight years after what I I feel, and, and you can disagree, but what I feel historians will look upon as a, as a relatively successful presidency, and then turn around and go completely backwards, to me, to, to a man with a temperament that is probably even worse than Bush's, and, and to somebody who you know, brought about and, and thrived on, on racial tension and, and racist policies, um, to, to head in that direction eight years after electing Barack Obama. What do you, what do you think about that, that backlash and how all of that happened? Oh, I think it definitely was a backlash. Um, you had America is built on the idea of equality. Uh, nobody wants to be perceived as a racist. Um, that that's so when, Obama took office. It was still a, you know, you, you had a theoretical idea of equality that everybody embraced theoretically. But I think for a lot of people, when that theory became reality, when there was a black man named Barack Obama in the White House, all of a sudden that theoretical became real and it stirred things in people that they weren't even aware existed. And, and you saw what I thought of as ridiculous statements such as uh, Barack Obama has set back race relations in this country. Barack Obama was the least racially provocative black person I know. <laughs> Not that I know Barack Obama, but you know, he's the, the only uh, black man who could possibly have been elected president had to be a perfect family man, uh, elegant, uh, rarely saw anger, um, very well educated and, and uh, non-threatening. Um, you could never have had a a black a black man who had three wives and multiple affairs and had played around with porn stars and playmates could never have been elected president. So there was definitely a, a, a backlash against uh, and a, some many left a subconscious backlash against uh, against Obama's presidency. Um, even before he took office, I remember that there was a the right wing was obsessed with the idea that there was a whitey tape. Do you remember the whitey tape? I do barely. Uh, well, there was the, the supposedly a tape existed of Michelle Obama dissing white people calling them whitey and we don't want whitey to know this and we don't want whitey to know that and it became i mean within conservative circles it became its existence was was taken as truth and it was just a matter of time until it was released and of course it never existed in the first place but they managed to work themselves into a lather about this totally fraudulent idea that that that, uh, fox news started peddling it was on hannity it was on other shows and it was going to doom obama's presidency and it never existed, but it, 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 the fact that they could invent that um, and convince themselves and each other that it existed, and that Michelle Obama of all people was the one who you know was anti-white and hated white people, that was a sign of what was to come. It wasn't until after that that that, that morphed into the birtherism, uh, you know, that Barack Obama wasn't a, a legitimate president of the United States. Again, a totally racist idea that had no factual basis whatsoever, but it met a psychological need for people. Uh, so it, it grew in popularity and Trump seized upon it. So yeah, I think definitely history will look back 
you go Barack Obama, the Obama administration is the only modern administration that had nobody indicted, nobody charged with a crime, no, no major scandal. And we, you know, look at what's happening in two years under Trump. So you, it's a, a very awkward and, and uh, painful swing of the pendulum. Uh, and race has an awful lot to do with it. Do you think that our national politics is sort of trapped in this seesaw motion? I mean, as as we sit here and the 2020 presidential race feels like it's about to kick off, almost all of the names that are floated by Democrats feel like polar opposites to President Trump, uh, either through what I imagine will probably be a record number of women who consider running for president, people from different backgrounds, people who bring different demeanors to the table. You know, Trump was a reaction to Obama. Obama was a reaction to the policies under Bush. Bush was a reaction to Clinton in some ways. Do you feel like we're sort of trapped in this seesaw motion? Or is this just the back and forth of of progress? I I think I don't think there's a conflict between those two explanations. I think it's definitely a, a seesaw. But I think we're 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 seeing more than that. We're going to see a much needed generational change. I, I'm in the process of writing a column now, uh, arguing that Joe Biden is a great man, great vice president, good American. He should not run for president. John Kerry, same thing. Bernie Sanders, same thing. Trump is the Trump presidency is a a big transition in American history. I don't think you can go from the Trump presidency to what used to exist before the Trump presidency. You have to we have to reimagine ourselves. The Democratic Party has to reimagine itself. The country has to reimagine itself. And I don't think those folks from the previous establishment are capable of doing that. I think we, we have to see new people come in. I, I, I don't have a, uh, a favorite among the, the newer Democrats coming up. I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, a lot of folks who who uh, have a lot of talent and can pull it off. But I do think the time has passed for the Democrats who are 70 something years old. Uh, you can't, we're not at the point where we're going to go backward. We're going to go forward. And so I, I think that's a good thing. And um, just to, to wrap up here. So uh, what comes next for you? Oh, I've got writing projects I've been meaning to get to. Um, like I said, the daily grind of, uh, producing a column every day, you're not able to step back and, and, and try to put things together. That's one of the, the things I've enjoyed most about this job is being able to try to figure out where we're going next, uh, what the trends are, to put you know data point A, B, C, and D from different areas all together, and, and all of a sudden you've got a new way of looking at things. That's very difficult to do when you're grinding out a daily column, uh, reacting to the daily news, uh, which is you know, a necessary part of the job, but it's just, uh, it's hard to, to lift your nose from the grindstone and take a longer view. And I'm looking forward to, to the ability to do that. I have some other writing projects I want to get to. I'm uh, eager to take the next chapter. I'm not thinking of it uh, as a retirement at all. It's just, it's just a, a time to do it a different way. Well, you've got a few more columns left this year before you close up shop, right? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm writing my last one. I'm going to will be in Sunday's newspaper, uh, the 15th, I think it is. And then I'm t- the next two weeks, last two weeks of the year, I'll be using vacation time. So that's that's uh, it's coming to a close. That part of the of my journalism career. It's a strange feeling. It's uh, 
again, it's something I've wanted. This is where I wanted, what I've wanted to do, what I, where I wanted to be for, for going back into childhood. And the fact that uh, I won't be doing it every day is rather strange. Uh, I wonder what's going to happen when there's a big news story breaking, uh, you know, Mueller issues his report or any number of things. And my instinct will be to sit down at a computer and, and write something about it. And I won't have an outlet to do that. And that's going to feel <laughs> very strange to me, but, but uh, that's, that's, that's part of life. Well, listeners, be sure you go and pick up that uh, Sunday AJC, grab that last column from Jay Bookman. And, and Jay, thank you so much for joining the show and, and best of luck for all of the new challenges coming your way in this next chapter. Thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the conversation. All right, so thank you to Jay for joining the show and for telling us about how telling us about his career at the AJC. Uh, with that, we are going to leave it there for the week. Um, so Megan, thank you as always for joining the pod. Thanks. It's good to be back. And Luke, it was good to talk to you as always. Also, great to be here. Um, you will hear from us sporadically through the holiday season. Uh, we're going to take some time, spend some time with our families, and relax a little bit. But we're going to be. Uh, fully in it for legislative session starting in January. First day of legislative session is the second Monday in January. Um, So if you don't hear from us much over the holidays, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season and get some rest and relaxation. And we'll be back at it again for the new year. Uh, But for now, we're going to leave it there. And so we will talk to you all again soon. By the way, Hanukkah will probably be over by the time we air this. In fact, because it ends today, I know it will be. So happy belated Hanukkah, everybody. Yes, happy belated Hanukkah. All right, guys, we will talk to you all again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.